Is your WordPress site fast? Get a detailed report of just how fast your WordPress site is and easy steps you can take to make it faster. Go to wpengine.com slash speedy for your free speed test. That's wpengine.com slash speedy. This is Love Your Work. The show will help you define and achieve your own version of success. I'm David Cadavy, and I'm a best-selling author, a bootstrapped entrepreneur, and an award-winning designer. I've built a business and a lifestyle that fits my values, and I want to help you do the same. So every Thursday, I bring you a new episode of Love Your Work. I seek out one-of-a-kind entrepreneurs and creators that break away from the pack. I dissect their unique paths and pull out the lessons so you can use them for your own journey. Learn how you can turn challenges into opportunities, how you can cut out the noise to focus, and how you can find the clues that will lead you to your calling. So check out Paul Bennett on episode 15. He sailed around the world while running his business, or Elise Bauer on episode 33. She bounced back from an illness to build a food blogging empire. And don't miss Jason Fried on episode one and former AOL CEO Steve Case on episode 25. I'll also bring on experts who will help you be more productive, creative, and healthier. So check out neuroscientist John Cunios in episode eight, Ryan Holiday on episode 31, and Dr. Terry Walls in episode 35. This week's guest is co-creator of the number one selling card game, actually the number one seller on all of the whole toys and games category on all of Amazon. It's a game for horrible people, and it's also America's number one gerbil coffin. It's called Cards Against Humanity, and you've probably played it before. Max Temkin and his friends were self-described nerds. They didn't play sports, they didn't have girlfriends, and they were all really bored. So they played lots of board games. They played Balderdash so much, they couldn't even play it anymore because they knew all of the words in the game. So they became connoisseurs. They played so many games, they had to make their own. Cards Against Humanity started as PDFs you could download and print out. The game is still available this way for free on their website, but Cards Against Humanity has now independently produced and sold their game, making millions in profit. Listen to this interview to learn how to make a good impression on notable people, how to be ready to act when luck comes your way, what deep two psychological phenomena made Cards Against Humanity so explosively popular, and why is it important to figure things out for yourself. Also, learn how Max and his team made $70,000 literally by selling nothing and nearly $4 million selling bullshit, and I mean actual shit from bulls. Here we go. Here's Max Temkin. This episode is brought to you by Treehouse. Take your career to the next level and learn from over 1,000 videos created by expert teachers on web design, coding, business, and much more. Claim your 14-day free trial at kadavy.net slash treehouse. I'm here with Max Temkin from Cards Against Humanity, and uh, Max, I, I gotta wonder when when you're at like a party or something, and people ask you what you do, how do you answer that question? Um, well, that's a that's an interesting question. I I feel like um, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it is very exciting to talk to you. Uh, but uh, I, I um, I've noticed like especially in the world of like tech, there is this real like status based. Um, job-based like hierarchy and a lot of times people will walk up to you at a party or an event and they'll be like you know they'll sort of size you up and they'll be like 
So what do you do? And you're and they're trying. What they're trying to decide is like, should they spend the time to talk to you or not? And I hate that. That feels so gross. So I stole. I usually steal um, a line from uh, my friend uh, Merlin Mann, and he's like, the greatest thing to say to people is, I'm a ceramicist because no one's exactly sure what it is, and it sounds extremely boring. And if they're the kind of person who will stop talking to you if you don't have an impressive tech job, that will that will end the conversation. So that's always a nice like separate the wheat from the chaff kind of a kind of an answer. So you're telling me you're a ceramicist? Yeah, or sometimes I say I work. Oh, I work with computers. You're a computer person. Yeah, I use a computer for my job. And then, do, do you ever end up like getting to the to like the the truth of what you do in those conversations? I mean, uh, I know that question sucks. Like, I, I, it, I, it hurts to even ask it to you because I hate being asked that question. Um. So, so it just you know it just depends. Honestly, you know, if if I'm meeting like a perfect stranger at a restaurant, or I, you know, if you run into someone and some, just making small talk with someone in the elevator or whatever, no, I never lead off with like that I, I'm like a thing that I'm well known for. Like, it's just so boring. Like it's boring for, I mean, frankly, just selfishly, it's boring for me. I don't want to answer pe- the same three questions or hear people's the same three stories people have about cards against humanity. Like I, I'm much more interested in hearing about other people and what they do or talking about other stuff that I do in my life. So I might tell people like I work in politics, which is, which is true. Um, or I'm a designer, which is true, or just I make games, I make board games, and that, that's usually a nice like opening for a conversation. Yeah, I think especially in those, I, oh, I was going to say, especially in those shorter, the shorter conversations within, in the elevator, you don't want to get into a whole thing. And so like the most vague thing, I, I used to just say, oh, I have an internet business or something. I, I learned the, the hard way that if I say, oh, I, I'm an author or something like that, then I start getting into this conversation that, that uh, is not interesting to me. Well, exactly. And like, and the other thing is like, you know, I learned um, some, a great piece of advice um, from um, uh, uh, Ryan Davis, who's this guy, a video games journalist at Giant Bomb, who had such um, a way with people. Like he was really the the best person I ever met at, at having, you know, he'd go to these public events and he was very recognizable and he would get just swarmed by fans. And he took the time, he talked to everybody, he made every, even when I, before I knew him, when I was just a fan of his, and he made every single person feel so valued and so listened to. And I asked him, I was like, what? I was like, how the hell are you doing this? Because I go to these things and I'm like, and I'm like, oh, get away from me. I like, I leave people with such a bad taste in their mouth after we have an interaction. And Ryan was like, you know, it's really simple. He's like, the first thing is just ask people when someone's excited to meet you, if they like recognize you from, from your work or whatever, they ought to already assume they already know all this stuff about you and they already assume that there's this sort of relationship which they do they have a relationship with mm-hmm. you and your work but they forget they don't often like come into it with the empathy to remember that you don't know who they are and that that they have something to contribute to the conversation so he's like the simplest thing is just say hi i'm ryan what's your name and that sort of almost cues them to it sort of puts them in that mindset of remembering oh Actually, even though I've seen this person on the internet before, we're meeting for the first time, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of expected to go through to to present myself to this person and be an equal in this conversation. And I found that question to be really helpful, really disarming. And you know, so even if I'm at a, a signing or an event, like anyone who comes up to the table to meet me, even if they they already know who I am or they want to talk about something or whatever, I always start by saying, "Hi, I'm Max. What's your name?" And that sort of puts us on on an equal footing. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed when I've met people who I've admired or something. Uh, I can think of some examples, and I might have seen it at a conference, and I go up to you know to talk to them, and they're they're like, "Oh yeah, hi, I'm uh, I'm Jason," and they shake hands and like, "Dude, that's Jason Fried. Like, I know who you are. Like, come on, like 
You yeah, know, it, it's, it, it's, it is disarming that way. But put yourself, but put yourself in Jason's point of view because he goes to these events. Everybody there has read his blog. Everybody knows what he's about. Everybody's read his book. They all want to come up to him and say, oh man, your work means so much. I mean, listen, I've done this to Jason Fried, right? I went up to him and was like, oh man, rework, like it meant so much to me. And I figured out what to do with my business because of it. And like my whole life is like based on these things that you've written. And, and I use Basecamp for my job. Like I have so much, so a million things I want to tell him, but like, yeah. So, but to put myself in his shoes, like he doesn't give a fuck about that. Like I'm just some guy coming up to him and he's, he, he wants the same enjoyment out of the conversation that I do as the fan. Right. So, um, I've also found just my advice for like, if you, if you're in that situation, you're meeting someone who's like, you know, someone you really look up to or whatever, they're just a human being and they're, they want to have that human connection the same way that you do. And it's, it, there may come a point in the conversation where you can say, man, your book really changed my life or I really love this thing. And, and, but just keep in mind, like a lot of the times that's more for you than for them, right? You're, you're yeah. really doing something for yourself by sort of having that like selfish sort of emotional catharsis where you're telling someone how important they are to you. I mean, that's really about you, not them. Well, that's actually an interesting thing. You might have some more tips for me on that as, as like a person, if you speak at a conference, which sometimes I'll speak at a conference and sometimes people will come up and then, you know, they'll say thank you for things that I've done or books uh, or like my book and things like that. And, uh, I really appreciate that. But then after that, it's sort of like a really dead, uncomfortable conversation. I kind of want to get out of it, but, um, you know, it sounds like you, you just say, Oh, hi, I'm David. That's one thing that, that helps. Is there any other like mental tricks that you've learned to, to, to make those more enjoyable? No, I mean, I'm the worst person in the world to ask about this because I'm really mostly, I'm really miserable at a lot of these conferences. And, you know, for me, uh, another, this is another great thing. Like I was one time, I love telling the story. I was at a, I was at a conference and I was at a gaming convention and you need these gaming conventions, you're burning the candle on both ends because you're working during the day. And if you're part of the industry, you're working during the day, but then you're like seeing your, your peers and the other professionals at night and you want to play games and everyone's out drinking. And it's like, I mean, you really go like crazy at these things. And, you know, there's also this mentality of like the con is like three days long. I have to see everyone. I have to do everything. So I was texting uh, my uh, friend Will and he, Will is like one of the busiest guys in the world and, and especially at these, you know, sort of like pop culture and gaming conventions. And I was like, hey, let's go grab a drink or something. And he and Will texts me back and he's like, you know, he's like, I am um, I am all out of mana for today and I could start burning life to recoup that mana, but I don't think that's advisable at this point in the convention. And I was like, man, that is the smartest thing I've ever heard. Like, that is exactly what it's like. It's like, Wait, what's mana? Uh, this is, oh, this, well, these this are very like highly, technical, highly technical uh, video game nerd terms. Gotcha. But uh, in, a, in a video game, mana is like your spell power. So it's like your power to cast uh, spells. And if you're a spell caster, it's like, it's a resource you have to manage. And when you're all out of mana, you can't cast any more spells. And some people can do like blood magic and they can almost like hurt that they can burn their life to regenerate mana, but you can only do that until you die. So, yeah. you know, it's like, that's not like a great way to go through your everyday life is like burning health, regenerate mana. I think some people get more mana just from interacting with more people and people I, like you and me, well, we need to recharge. That is the classic definition of an, of an introvert versus an extrovert, right? Is like an intro, an extrovert is someone who gets charged up by being with people and an introvert is someone who needs to recharge after they're with people. They, they deplete their energy being with people. And I am, you know, I, I've sort of been on like, I, I, I can perform well, like in front of a crowd, like I can, I'm a, I'm a good speaker. I did debate in high school. Like I, it's a thing I actually enjoy speaking in front of a crowd. If I, assuming I have like something to say, 
And for a while, I was like, well, I wonder what that means. But honestly, like, I, I think I'm really, have, I'm just coming to terms with the fact that I'm like kind of a classic introvert. Because like, at the end of these, the day with these things, or even a day at work where I'm like in meetings with people all day, like, I'm just ready to go crawl into a hole. Like, I don't want to see my girlfriend. I don't want to see my friends. I just want to go a, into a, close, go into a closet like the one you're recording in and close the door. <laughs> a book alone and not have anyone talk to me oh i know i know the feeling and i i always i consistently test like right on the line for you know extrovert introvert and it, it definitely goes both ways for me uh but we haven't gotten to actually what you what you what you uh what i think you're best known for is probably cards against humanity and for the people who aren't fam familiar with that it's a uh, a card game for for horrible people is is what is usually said how do you usually describe that to, to somebody who's unfamiliar um, oh man, I don't know. It's a, it's a, Cards Against Humanity is a comedy party game. It's, it's, uh, extremely simple. It's uh, truly one of the dumbest games ever made. Um, basically there's, uh, you get this box of cards, there's black cards, there's white cards. One person plays a black card to the group and that card is like a question or a fill in the blank phrase. And then everyone else in the group has this hand of the white cards and the white cards are sort of, um, jokes or um, ideas that could be surprising or funny or offensive or sad or interesting and, or tropes from pop culture. And everybody sort of tries to play the white card to fill in the blank in a black card just to make the judge laugh. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, there's more rules and stuff to that and people can get competitive and they can take it seriously. But really at its core, it's just this sort of um, play experience to where you and your friends can make each other laugh in, in sort of a safe, presented, uh, unscrew-upable way. Yeah, um, and, and like on, uh, as an example, like a black card might say, uh, before you go, Mr. Bond, I need to show you my blank. And then the, the, somebody could play a card that's like my pile of uh, sex toys or something, and, and then everybody competes with different white cards they fill in the blank with, right? So you can make them, who has the funniest one? Right. And so how did all that start? Well, it's, uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of, um, uh, 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 the sort of abridged version is, uh, me, you know, so Cards Against Humanity is this project made by me and seven friends. There's eight of us. And we're all like Jewish kids from the suburbs of Chicago who went to public school together. We grew up together. So we were always the nerds in school. We read like sci-fi books together and like played video games together and didn't, you know, we were friends with each other and sat with each other at the lunch table because like other people didn't want to sit with us. We were always the like nerdy, like underbelly of the school. And we just have a long like history over years and years and years of like making comedy things for each other and trying to make each other laugh and making our own games and sort of coming up with this stuff. Like I think especially like before you had the internet, like that was what especially like nerds did was you would like get together with your nerdy friends and, if, you know, you'd if you had money, you could go buy games or something. But if you didn't, you just sort of make stuff up for yourself and um, try and come up with that thing that made you laugh or, or pass the time or whatever. And uh, cards was something we made when we were in college. And it was just sort of the last in a long line of these like kind of comedy game prototypes and improv games that we would play together. And it was the first one we, we, we made it for this like New Year's party where we had a bunch of people and we wanted a game that would work for a big group. And it was the first thing we worked on where we were like the next morning we woke up and we were like, wow, that was really funny. Like not, not just as an in joke for us, but like it was like objectively like people who didn't know us were laughing at it. And that was kind of new. So we were like, maybe we should keep going with this and see what happens. And, and so, I mean, it, so you were this tight knit group of friends. You're doing, uh, you're like making up games, you're playing pranks on each other and things like that. 
what were like some of the starting, what were like the first games that you can think of that you, you guys made together? Well, we were, we were always um, really obsessed with this game called Dictionary Dabble, or it's also called Balderdash. Do you know that game? Oh, Balderdash is great. Yeah. Yeah, so so that was kind of our go-to game, and we actually wound up playing that so much that we knew we learned the words, and we couldn't play it anymore because we knew someone would always remember the one of the word, you know, the word, the words that you're not supposed to know, the dictionary words. Mm-hmm. So then we sort of took the scoring mechanism of Balder Dash, which is the way it works. But I should probably explain this game. The way it works is like um, one player is the judge, <clears throat> and they read out a word that is a dictionary word that no one's ever heard of, like a really obscure word. Then everybody has a slip of paper. They write down a fake definition for what they think that word is that that could be plausible. And the judge sort of secretly writes down the real definition for the word and then collects all the answers and shuffles them up and reads them all out to everyone. Then everyone votes on which one they think the real definition is. And if you can get points if you vote for the correct word, the correct definition, or if you're if ever if other people vote for your fake answer and you sort of wrote the best fake answer, then you get points that way. Um, so we sort of took that. And we started making like other sort of comedy things that weren't based on dictionary words. So like our, one of our first game prototypes was sort of, it was actually inspired by this thing Brian Eno made called the Oblique Strategy Cards. And um, like one of our parents had a copy of that deck or something. So we kind of were mashing that up with Balderdash. So you would ask a question to the group um, that was like, how would you, uh, it was like, um, if you're confronted with like a creative problem, how would you solve it? So you're something along those lines, right? And then everyone would answer, and, and I, if I was the judge, everyone would answer, how would Max answer this question? And then I would answer how I would really answer this question. And then everyone would vote and you'd try and pick out, like, was, did anyone write a better answer for me than I did, right? So, but that game never worked for anyone who wasn't us because they didn't know us, right? So it was really hard to play with people you weren't already close with. So we started writing more, like, comedy ones. So we were like, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what food would you eat? And then you'd guess what, um, you'd sort of guess what, what, the judge actually said. And we played that for a while and we realized like everyone was trying to make jokes and it was sort of inviting people to be funny and be shocking and, and get the group to laugh. But most people were bombing. Like they were writing these answers that were cruel or they weren't funny or they were making people uncomfortable. And then we were sort of like, it sort of hit us of like, you know what, we really need to like write the, an- the questions and the answers. And that's where it really started get- coming together. Then when we sort of created the like pick two mechanic where there's cards that have two blanks and you're doing wordplay and mashing things up together, that's kind of creatively like where it really opened up. Yeah, so once you started adding some structure to it, then people couldn't kind of go off the rails to, to hurt other people's feelings and stuff. Exactly. And we, you know, we always had this concern of like, well, at some point we're gonna like um, we're gonna make this game so simple and controlled that people will feel like they're not doing anything. But that never happened. I mean, you know, people people do feel as though they're creating and are, uh, their sort of own comedy creation just by playing a funny white card. And it, it, I mean, you know, um, that's that's great. Like, I'm I'm really. I mean, that's kind of the secret weapon of cards is that people really can sort of authentically feel like they're making their own joke, even though they're doing it within the sort of safe confines of this comedy system that we've created. I love how you, it, I mean, you kind of became such aficionados of games that you knew all of the words that were in Balderdash and it got boring. Like, that's, that's an enormous amount of game playing time. Hundreds of hours. I mean, yes. Like, I mean, the things that we would get, I mean, that's nerds, though. Nerds get into something and they get all the way into it. And, you know, especially when you're a kid, you know, it's like, when you're when you're that nerdy kid in, in middle school, it's like, well, 
you come home, you like finish your homework in 20 minutes. You don't have a girlfriend. You don't have other friends. Like it's just, you're not playing sports. It's like, what would we do? We'd get together and like watch comedy things and play games until we knew every possible thing to know about the game. Mm-hmm. And I mean, now that that game, uh, Cartoons Humanity is, I was just looking on Amazon. It's the number one best-selling toys and games product on all of Amazon. So hugely popular. And as I understand it, when you first started the game, it was really just like PDFs that people could download and they could print it out and, and play it for free. Yeah, and in fact, the the whole game is still available that way. I mean, we, it was never um, it was never any sort of plan or goal that this would be a commercial product, or certainly that even if it was a commercial product, that it would be one that we made money on. Um, you know, I had I, of the cards guys, I was actually the only one of the guys who had sort of previously worked on a game. I made um, a very popular game when I was in college called Humans vs. Zombies that was sort of a precursor to Cards Against Humanity. And it's like this huge game of tag. Happy to go into a little more detail on that if you want. But like, essentially, it was this big game of tag. We felt that it was very important that the game was always free to play. And um, it's in the chart. We made a company to protect the sort of intellectual property for Humans vs. Zombies, but it's in the charter of our company that we could never make a profit or charge people to play. So... Um, that was always the ethic that I had. Like, I always think games, I, I don't know. It's like, I'm not thinking about this as a business person. I'm, I'm thinking about this as like someone who just wants to contribute something to the culture. And there's a kind of a joyfulness and like, I put this thing in the world and it's making people laugh. So that was all I ever gave a shit about. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we, we were like, you know, we, we were playing the game it was making people laugh and we were like, people on the internet will like this. But the idea, it was so weird. It was so, it was so subversive and out there and you have to remember like also like this was the tail end of the bush administration and just the mere idea of like wordplay of like taking the language and like twisting it into meaninglessness it was it was political it was so different it's so hard to imagine now how in the obama era right what a different world it was like you know eight ten years ago but it was so subversive like the whole premise of the game is sort of this anti-authoritarian like nobody owns language nobody owns all this like slick advertising terms in pop culture and it's this sort of like crazy anarchic like you can twist these words and this this sort of advertising speak and and these political slogans into anything you want and we were like we were looking at it and we were like no one's going to pay for this like we'll be lucky that anyone ever looks at it so we just yeah we like made a pdf we put it under creative commons we posted online as a free download and it's still there under those exact terms and anyone can go get the game for free at uh, cardsagainsthumanity.com and so when you were so just to sort of simple simplify the story you're playing balderdash you get so sick of that you you start making your own games you make cards against humanity and then you end up deciding oh we're going to put this for free on the internet as as pdfs what was the point at which you decided oh this needed needed to be shared with people well, we, we started getting, so we had this website where, you know, where you could download the game. I think I still even have the like original version of this website. And, um, one of the things on there was like emails. If you have any kind, if you're like mad about something or you want, you know, you, I don't know, you want to talk to us or whatever. And we started getting hundreds of emails. This, this thing was sort of getting this like cult following and like snowballing and getting bigger and bigger. And then, you know, back in the day it was like, it was websites, it was on like Metafilter and something awful and like forums, right? There was no... I think this was like the first year that Twitter was out was when you were starting cards. Like there was none of this stuff. So it was, it was very, it was very like 
you know, being posted on, on forums and things like that. But we started getting hundreds of emails of people saying, I want to play this game, but I don't have to print and cut the cards myself because it's, you know, frankly, a lot of work. So they were like, you should just like sell this game. And we, and we sort of like, at first we were sort of dismissive because we were like, well, A, like we don't know how to make a game, but B, like no one's going to buy this. Like, what is it? Like 20 people emailed us, want to buy this thing? Like, it just seems like, it just seems impossible. So um, along that, around that time, um, you know, Kickstarter was starting to pick up a steam. I saw a Kickstarter project by this guy I had worked with on the 2008 uh, Obama campaign named Scott Thomas. And he made this book called Designing Obama that was like, still is my favorite design book and very important and influential for me. And I saw how Kickstarter, I was like, this took this thing that, you know, it took this idea that I wasn't sure anyone would care about, which is like the insider baseball design process of how the Obama brand got built. But it let Scott make the most pure expression of that book that is humanly possible. I mean, there was no creative sacrifice was spared to make this book exactly right. It was stuff that we couldn't even do on the campaign because it was too expensive or laborious. And I was like, wow, Kickstarter is an amazing like creative tool for this. And I was like, this is perfect for cards because no publisher will touch this. Like we're not going to be able to sell it in Walmart, but like if the people feel strongly about this are willing to like put up their money, we'll get money to, you know, we'll get a budget and we'll still be able to make it without making any sort of creative sacrifices. So we asked for, we wound up asking for $4,000, which was more money than we or anyone we knew had. And it got $15,000 in Kickstarter. And that was sort of the, the beginning of the company. We took all that money and did a first printing and sold that and used that money to do a second printing and sold that and used that money to do a third printing. And then eventually it just became a business. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you sort of felt like people wouldn't buy the game. Um, I imagine you've learned some things since then as... As, as far as how consumer behavior works and, and such, were, were there any like sort of standard beliefs that you had that changed since, since that time when you thought people wouldn't buy it? No, I mean, I, I still, I mean, if I could go back and give myself advice, you know, at that time, it, it's interesting because like people come, here's another way to think of it. People email me every day and they say, I am working on a game and I play it with my friends and it is the most fun game in the world. It is way more fun than Cards Against Humanity. This game will be huge. What should I do? How do I make a million dollars on this game and make a a fortune and become famous for making this game? And the advice that I would give them is don't plan on that. Like nobody gets, nobody makes money making games. Nobody gets a good kind of famous making games. It is such a crapshoot. We got, you know, there's no predicting it. Um, everyone who's successful has some story they want to spin of like why they're successful. They're like, well, every morning I wake up and I have a bowl of oatmeal and that is the secret of my success. And if you two just wake up and have a bowl of oatmeal, your game will be successful as well. And nobody really, I mean, the truth is I don't think anybody really knows why they're successful. Um, everybody has their tip tips and tricks and clever things they're going to say that are like, well, these were our 10, our 10 strategies that we did or whatever, but they don't, honestly, they don't even know because what's their control group. They don't know if that's what was successful or not. Um, I would say, here's what we did that was, I'm not going to say it'll make a project successful. I'll say, here's what I think we did that increased that, 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 you know, here's, okay, here's a way to think about it. My grandpa always used to tell me that he's like in life, you there's smart and there's lucky. And he's like, most people get lucky a certain amount of times in their life. Like everybody gets lucky sometimes. 
But being smart is like have, putting yourself in the position that when you get lucky, you can seize on it and take advantage of it. That you're like positioned correctly that you, when you get lucky, you're like, A, you have to recognize it. You have to be like, wow, this is a lucky break happening right now. And B, you have to be like, I better do something about it and know what to do. So here's what we did that I think was smart that, that, le- that let us take advantage of what was lucky, which is essentially the like cult popularity of Cards Against Humanity. Uh, the first thing is, I think we cared a lot about, well, the, the first thing was the game had a lot of integrity. Like we made it, we made the game the best we could. We did not make it in the way that we thought would be the most popular. All we cared about and all we care about now is what makes people laugh, what's funny, what makes us laugh. Every, nothing else matters. If we're like, well, this really makes us laugh, but also some people might get mad, we really do not care. We're like, you know what? There's something honest about the fact that it's making us laugh. We're going to do it. Um, that's sacrosanct. That's the, first, that's the most important thing is the integrity of it. And people who have these schemes of like, I am going to do something that I know is artistically not valid or dishonest, but it's going to trick people and the masses will love it. They're always wrong. That never works. Um, people want something authentic and real, not something where they're being manipulated. That's number one. Number two was, I think we did a really good job with design and design is something that most people kind of, most people kind of have an idea. They figure out the business and what they're going to do with it. And then they like slap a little design on in the end. So it like has a cool logo. And I don't, that's not my understanding of what design is. To me, design is how it's, it's how it works. It's what, and that's, that's like the, the famous Steve Jobs quote, design is how it works at Apple. And it's like, you know, I don't want to, I mean, this is a whole separate conversation, but it's like, we, we thought from the beginning, how will people know how to play this game? What will the cards look like? What design of the cards is the most funny? What design of the cards makes it the easiest to hold in your hand and tells you how to use it and intuitively shows you what to do and how to engage with it? What design of the box makes it stand out on the shelf? What makes it, uh, what tell, what design tells you our values and what we're about? And I think the fact that we like put a lot of sweat into figuring that stuff out before anyone ever saw the game, it really showed because we had this like cohesive, simple, understandable, professional, clear message where people could look at Cards Against Humanity and be like, that's for me or that's not for me. Um, and, and they just understood it at first glance. Um, I'm the- oh, sorry, I was going to uh, yeah. say, do you think that it helped having that cohesive vision, having that sharp vision? Did it help to be working with people that you had such a close relationship with? Absolutely. But lots of people work with um, designers that do an amazing job for them and they don't have a 30 year friendship with them, right? Like mm-hmm. that's kind of the job of a designer. Like, listen, if you're, if, if one of your listeners is working on a project, let's say, and they're kind of wondering, how do I make design a core thing of this? Like have a design co-founder. It doesn't have to be your best friend. It has to be someone who's good at design and will advocate for that and fight with you. And if you're doing something and you're like, well, it's important to the business that we do this. And the designer's like, yes, but no one will use it because the design sucks. You need someone who's going to say, hang on, stop. Let's think this through. Uh, that, cause that's where a lot of these, that's where a lot of this stuff goes terribly awry. Right. And do you have any insight into kind of like what's going on psychologically with the game, with cards of humanity? What is it that, that hits people in this way that, that makes it spread so much? Um, that's interesting. I mean, I think there was, I think it was the right place in the right time. I mean, culturally you had the Obama election and you had this, I mean, it really was a time of excitement and hope and, and 
change in America. And I think people were just like, there was like this kind of like fun, um, I, I just think there was this like joyful, fun, like reclaiming of political discourse where it was like you had this really frightened, locked down conservative political discourse in the country for eight years under the Bush administration. And people kind of came out of that and they were like, wow, like it's, you know, it's like we're now we're going to have a national conversation about race and we're going to nationally, we're going to, we're going to have a conversation about gay rights and all of these things that were just, I mean, people forget it's like in 2004, John Kerry lost his election because he, because of gay marriage, that was the single issue that the Republicans seized upon to win a national election in this country. It is so fast. It's breakneck speed that like, what was it like really like five, six years later, gay marriage is the law of the land. And it's like, well, where do we go from? It was such a taboo that people were voting against John Kerry because he was in favor of gay marriage to law of the land. And everyone is more or less okay. We've kind of dealt with it. We're more or less okay with it. Now we have, you know, people, we don't even care who serves in the military, who gets married. It's just, that's, that's the law. I don't know. It's just like something changed, something snapped in the culture. I'm grateful for it. I love it. I hope it doesn't mean that Trump gets elected president um, now in America. But I think especially in, in the U.S., it's like some, we just rode this wave of, of a loosening up of the, of the culture and of the language. And, in a, and it was the right sort of comedy timing for us. Um, I think we also sort of rode uh, a games, a, a tabletop games boom. Like I think people spend a lot of time on computers. They're very lonely. They're very isolated from each other. And we offered people an opportunity to do this sort of old-fashioned analog in-person thing with their friends that's not mediated by screens. And, you know, again, that's lucky, right? It was the right place and the right time for that idea to, to strike. And we also probably rode like a kind of an exciting indie games um, wave because around when Cards was getting popular, there was lots of press and attention being paid to this like kind of weird sideshow of like independent games. And, and we got lots mm -hmm. of attention for being part of that. I also think there's this element of that you helped people be funny in front of their friends, you know, by, by giving them the structure, by giving them cards that almost any combination is funny in the game. And then suddenly you, you, you help people rock. It's kind of one of these things that people talk about in product development, like help your customer look good in some way. Yet at the same time, they get to exercise this, this sort of misanthropic view of the world with, having permission to say things that would be really offensive if they were like actually saying it, but they can just put down a card and everybody laughs. Yeah, think I think there's that? absolutely. I think there's, I think there's sort of two ideas there that are really interesting. The first thing is, you know, we, we sometimes get flack from like professional comedians and comedy writers and stuff. And they're like, Oh, like who, why, why would anyone play cards against humanity? It's just these like pre-written jokes and it's just fill in the blank. And you're just like, kind of like, why would anybody cards. use a Mac computer? There's no, there's no command line on it. Sort of. Right. Yeah. Why would you have a GUI on a computer? Right. Cause you're, why not just go into the bash and do everything, uh, you know, write everything in assembly. Well, it's like, I get it. I mean, if you're, if you're a funny person, pe funny people hang out with other, you know, funny people are like, a, they're like damaged misanthropes and they hang out with other damaged misanthropes. I feel I feel like as a member of the damaged misanthrope community, I feel qualified to say this. But uh, you know what I mean? It's like they're they're living this weird singular world of like uh, this like insular world of like people taking improv classes and complaining about their lives, and everyone is hilarious. But you have no idea how rare it is for people to be funny and make their friends laugh. And and but but people take for granted what a special feeling that is to have 
people are gl- you glow for a whole day. If you get that line that makes your group of friends laugh, it's like you get that that great feeling for hours. It's like a high, right? And it is a special experience to to get to have that. So that's I do think that's I mean really that is the core sort of like animalistic pleasure of Cards Against Humanity. It's like you get to play this thing and people laugh and it's kind of a a controlled safe way to do it where you're not going to risk that people hate you. The second thing is um I uh it's kind of upsetting to me to say this, but cards is like an incredible icebreaker game. As someone who was like forced throughout his life to play like a lot of like just absolute shit icebreaker games in college and stuff, like games to help you like get to know people or whatever. Those games are terrible and I hate them and they're bad. And I hate that people consider cards to be part of that genre. But however, I have seen it work really well and I've heard tons of stories from people of how great of an icebreaker cards is. And, you know, I've, I've thought about it a little bit and the best I can figure, it's like when you, you know, when you meet people, the sort of central fear when you're in this new group of people is like, will these people accept me? Will we share the same values? Will we be part of the same tribe? Will I say the wrong thing? Will I be, will I be shunned? You know, will I be exiled? And where, and then where's everyone's like lines, you know, what's the tone here? And what cards does is it, it in a in a way that's within the in game design and in theaters, there's this term called the magic circle, which is like this everyone is accepting the alternate reality of the play or the game that substitutes for the everyday logic of their own reality. And within the magic circle of the game, cards makes everyone say the wrong thing. That is the game. You're saying the wrong thing that no one should ever say. And in a way, it's sort of like for a group of people who are just meeting or getting to know each other, it's like everyone's gonna come out, they're gonna say the the absolute wrong, inappropriate thing. Everyone's going to laugh at it. And the more it's like, okay, we're all okay. We're all human beings. We all have a sense of humor. Uh, we're all, we're all on the same team here. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a, I think that's a really accurate description of what's going on. Um, and I've also really admire some of the promotions that you have had for cards against humanity. Uh, I think it was, you know, Christmas time, black Friday, you, you uh, raised the price of cards against humanity You've uh, sold boxes of bullshit, like literal crap from from bulls, and and people bought that as like was that a Black Friday deal or was that a uh, just yeah? Well, this is thing? this is just sort of an interesting. Um, it's just sort of like a, an interesting story of how we do all of our marketing. I mean, cards, um, you know, mostly out of necessity because we've been broke for most of our company's history. We don't spend any money on advertising, so we're always looking for something we can do. But you know, nonetheless, it's very important to us that we get some attention on Black Friday because that's when everyone buys things, right? Or, or around the holiday, really not on Black Friday, but around the holidays, right? We want people to be thinking about Cards Against Humanity and to consider buying it as a gift because, like, we have you know employees and we want to pay their health insurance, and you know we want to like buy groceries and stuff. So that's just the business. So. Um, it's very hard. And like the, I think the obvious answer is like, oh, well, we should just buy ads and we'll like compete against like Hasbro and Mattel and whatever and like so advertise our game. Fortunately, there, no matter, even if we spent all of our money on ads, we'd never get a tenth of the advertising budget of a big toy company like Mattel, right? So what that leaves us with is like we have to fight like a, a guerrilla war. Like we can't fight the battle on their terms. We have to like pop out of the bushes and ambush them. So we're always looking for those opportunities, like Black Friday is kind of our big one, where everyone has some like big blowout corporate PR thing, and, and they're spending tons of money to promote it, and it's this big thing. And then we swoop in and we do something that's basically very free or low cost, but it's like very out of left field and surprising, 
and we get just a lot of earned media and attention and and comedy value out of it and sort of capture the stories because everyone on Black Friday, the whole press, everyone on the internet, everyone's looking to write a story about Black Friday and we feel like without spending almost any money, we can usually come in and get a better story that is more in line with most people's values about what Black Friday means. We're going to take a quick break. The other day I saw an ad for something that I wanted to buy and I'm telling you, I was really ready to buy it on first sight. It was that cool. So I clicked on the ad and then I waited and I waited and I waited. So I went back to Facebook and I saw a bunch of cool stuff there. I saw a video of some people climbing on top of some tall buildings. And then there's this really interesting article about antibacterial soap. And you know, I never did end up buying that product. Actually, I can't even tell you what it was. I forgot. You know speed matters on the web. People want instant gratification. If they don't get it, they're always a click away from something more interesting, which is why I used to obsess with trying to get my WordPress site optimized. I would mess around with caching plugins and setting up a CDN and playing with image sprites. And, you know, there were a lot of other things I would have rather been doing with my Saturday nights, but it did work. My traffic went up and my revenue went up. And I wish I would have had this WordPress speed test tool back then. You just enter your website and you get a detailed report of just how fast your WordPress site is and easy steps you can take to make it faster. So go check it out. It's at wpengine.com speedy. You're going to get a free speed test. That's wpengine.com speedy. It's like a perfect positioning move, too, because everybody's zigging. Everybody's saying, oh, here's our great deal. We're going to give away free TVs at Best Buy or something like that. And then you're just saying, well, um, I think one of them was, you, you give us $5 and you don't get anything. And you have to, like, click a box. Like, I agree that I understand that I'm giving you $5 and I'm getting yep. nothing at all in return. And obviously, that's going to be a great news story because who else would do that? Yeah, well, we and and you know what's funny is like we're actually like that promotion last year. It, it's like escalates every year, and that that thing we did that promotion last year that was called the one day only give cards against humanity five dollars sale, and it was like the idea is like on black. It's like you can buy the best thing to buy on Black Friday is nothing. Like on Black Friday, everyone is selling you something. But Cards Against Humanity is the only company that has the integrity to sell you nothing, and we are selling it for only five dollars. That is an incredible. <laughs> For only $5, you can get nothing from Cards Against Humanity. Um, it's a great deal. And uh, you know what's funny is like that's actually like third level recursive like jujitsu anti-Black Friday marketing. So Black Friday, it, Black Friday, first of all, it's so disgusting. It's, 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 it comes right after this day in the U.S., you know, Thanksgiving, where you're supposed to be thankful for what you have. And then it's this just disgusting orgy of consumer, you know, frenzy where everyone is like bashing into each other, trying to get like cheap electronics and bullshit they don't need. It, it really, it really is offensive and we hate it. And, uh, most Americans feel this. I think most people hate it. Even the people participating in it hate black Friday. Everyone hates mm -hmm. black Friday. So the first level, the, the lowest level of black Friday sale is a deal, a sale, a coupon. Right. And, and when we were first thinking of like, how do we parody this? We were like, well, let's do a coupon for one cent off. Well, you get a one day only one cent off Cards Against Humanity coupon. And ultimately we rejected that idea. We, we made us laugh and we were like, this is funny. But ultimately it felt, we were like, oh, I still feel a little weird about this. And it was because we didn't want to do a coupon on Black Friday. <laughs> like even if it's a shitty coupon, it's still kind of taking advantage of, of it in the same way as everyone else is. So the first year, instead of that deal, what we did was we did a $5 more sale and we raised all the prices and everything. And that was sort of a protest a Black Friday protest of like, 
hey, we're opting out of this. Like, I don't really give, we don't give a shit if you buy our stuff or not. You know, it's like, this, this, is, this is what we're about. And ironically, it got tons of attention and we sold tons of games and made a lot of money and it was, it was awesome from a marketing point of view. Um, but now everyone does that. That was three years ago and the world has changed. Like this year, I don't know if you remember, there was a massive like REI closed all their stores on Black Friday, which is just the default of whatever. It's like the basic decent thing to do is like not make your employees work the day after Thanksgiving. But it's just like they made such a fucking promotion. They were in the New York Times. And they had TV ads. And it was like I they had some fucking hashtag on Twitter. It was like it was like we're closed. REI is closed. It was a big national promotion of how proud they were to be closed. They were like, go outside and like adventure or whatever. And it was just such this gross marketing thing. And they clearly weren't on vacation because they were all marketing their stupid hashtag on Black Friday. So it's like now it's like, well, they we can't even do that anymore. They were because that's been co-opted by corporate culture as well. So it's like we're not. It's not even cool to be like we're not doing anything on Black Friday. Or we're closed or we're taking our store down. So that's why we're like, we're like, well, even that's really dishonest because you're still selling shit to people on Black, you know, you're still using Black Friday to, to sell. Of course, we're doing that too. But at least I feel like the fun thing about the like, give us $5 thing is at least we have the integrity to be like, hey, we just want your money. Like, you know, like we're a business, like, come on, pony up. And there's something so crass, but also like honest about that. Like we even call it, like we email people about it. We describe it as like, I think we described it as, it's time we we've launched like a desperate bid for your attention and money. Like we're just like so transparent about it. And, and there's a way, like I always love thinking about this as like an improv scene, which kind of goes to our, our roots in like Chicago comedy where we create this, this improv scene and we're like, you know, in improv, you always have this false premise and someone always starts off the scene and they're like, um, you know, uh, a family having a fight or whatever. Right. And you're, and there's always that moment of tension of like, are the other actors going to be into this? Is it going to happen? Is it going to come together? Is it going to be funny? You have that moment of like, ooh, what's, what's this? What's going to happen? Is this real or is it not real? Um, so we put out that thing and we're like, hey, give us $5. And there's a counter on the website and you can watch it tick up as people give us money. And we have no idea. We honestly had no idea what was going to happen if people were going to get mad or what. By the end of the day, we wound up raising $70,000 from people. So tons of people came in and gave us $5 because they thought it would be funny. And the way I see that is just like an improv that someone, that is the public. They're our scene partner in the scene that we're performing for the broader world. And you're creating the premise of the scene and the public is coming in and saying, yes, and, which is what you do in improv. So you have this crazy family situation and your scene partner says, yes, that's true. And this, and suddenly the tension is relieved. The false thing that was invented a moment ago on stage becomes real for everyone in the audience. And that's where the sort of absurdity and the comedy naturally enter into it. And that becomes... The, the fact that that happens, like we actually take a risk that this thing might fail, the, the, our fans kind of come to our defense and yes, and the scene and make it real. That is like an irresistible story. Like everyone wants to post about that. They're like, can you, it's just like watching improv. It's the magic. It's like, I cannot believe this is happening in front of my eyes right now. When it's bad, it's really sad and pathetic. It makes you feel terrible. But when it's good, it's like transcendent. You're like, this is magical. You make it easy for them to, to sort of complete the joke. Yeah, that, exactly. that you're making and it, it makes them feel good. And it's, and it's actually, it's, it's perfect because it goes perfectly with cards against humanity. Like if any old business did the exact same thing, it wouldn't really work. Now REI positioned theirs as a go outside, which, which makes sense. Uh, but as you said, they, you know, they, it, maybe that wasn't exactly the, the purest way to, to do it. But, um, 
but uh, it, it tied in perfectly to sort of the misanthropic uh, posture of, of Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, I think that's such a good observation that it's kind of like the game itself of like, well, we're giving people this framework in which they can be funny. And what makes it funny is them playing their part in the scene and giving us five dollars. And, you know, people some people did get mad. They were like, I can't believe these people are spending five dollars for nothing. But another way to look at it is all the people who did that. Well, it's like we went from being from nothing happening to having this story in like the Wall Street Journal of like that this crazy thing happened. And like five dollars is pretty cheap for that for that kind of a joke, right? Like like everyone it's like kickstarting a crazy practical joke. It's like, well, what's the value in that? No, it's funny. It's like putting this thing into the culture that's funny and all these people help make it. I would put five dollars. I backed a project on Kickstarter for the comedian Kurt Brownholler to um skywrite um over the sky of Los Angeles, how do I land in a to hire a skywriter to write that. Like, what did I get out of that? Nothing. It's funny. I'm glad I made. Like, I'm I mean, so happy I made that happen. Really, you like? I did. Kind of yeah. And it, and yeah, it's but same it's, way such, as... it's such a stupid way to look at value to be like, well, what object? What physical? Did you get a TV? Well, no. You got an experience in my life and a story and a thing I did. Well, a thing I did with all these people. Well, think about it this way: the the, the the things that most people buy on Black Friday or that they buy in general. A lot of it is imaginary. A lot of it is feeling. A lot of it is how is it going to make them feel about themselves to uh, have this particular piece of clothing or, you know, this is Coca-Cola's entire advertising thing is, okay, we've got sugar water, but all the advertising is about how is it going to make you feel, et et cetera. And that's part of what you're buying. So to, you know, there's this idea of buy nothing day for Black Friday, which is, is, is great, but like you were literally had people gave them an opportunity to take an action that was like a protest against this ridiculous uh, cultural phenomenon. Yeah, we even did, there was even a punchline, like I don't think most people sort of followed it this closely, but there was like a great little punchline at the end where we were like, at the bottom of the thing, we were like, we were like, stay tuned and tomorrow we're going to post a huge update and we'll reveal the surprise of how we're spending the money. And we're kind of known for giving having these really cool like political causes and charity causes. And I think everyone was like, Oh, this will, this will be some like feel good, like charity. Like we're going to buy like, um, you know, um, uh, classroom projects and uh, donors choose, or we'll buy like, um, goats and cows for people through Heifer international. Like some, like, I think people were expecting this, like feel good, like sort of, um, buy ourselves out of the doghouse, like move at the end of this. And we teased it. We were like, sign up, we'll update you. We're going to post the update on like the, the grand finale surprise of how we spend the money. And then we posted the update and we were like, surprise, we kept it. And we just took all the money and like gave it to all our employees. And then we posted a receipt of all the stuff they bought with it. <laughs> and we were like, you know what? That's the, that has that kind of, in a way that kind of has to be the punchline of this. Like, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. But it has to be right. It would be in a way it would almost take the, it, it kind of like neuters it for me to like, yes. Oh, we gave it all to charity. Right. Like, yeah. No, we're doing it's really gross. It's like it's 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 a it, it it's not cards against humanity's way to half commit to the premise, right? So the premise right. here is we're doing this over the top obnoxious thing where you can just like give us money and it's just this crass celebration of receiving money and spending money on Black Friday. And then it felt like well we're we're cutting the legs out from under this joke if we don't follow through on it. So um and people you can check it out actually. It's a it's still a, it's a it's a really funny page. It's a cardsagainsthumanity.com slash Black Friday. And that's kind of this huge annotated receipt of all the things all our employees bought with this money. 
And that was also hilarious because no one, we had no, nobody expected this would make like this much money. We thought we'd make like a thousand bucks or something, right? And that still would have been funny, but uh, this was like over the top. I remember like that that night, I I had to like text people and I was like, hey, good news, bad news. Like, good news, I'm giving you, everyone gets $4,000 to spend on whatever they want. Bad news, you have to spend it in like three hours so we can make this website. Oh, so they had to spend it right away. Yeah, because we wanted to post. I mean, this this yeah. receipt is actually accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, because otherwise it would it would just be like kind of any other business that uh, uses giving to a charity or something as a, a a basis for for getting people to buy more things, which exactly. has its own taste to it. Exactly, and we do. I mean, we have um, over the last couple of years we've raised over $4 million for all kinds of cool causes that I, some of them I mentioned, we run this like scholarship for women getting degrees in, um, um, STEM fields. Uh, we do, we've done really awesome things with our money, but we're not, we never, we don't advertise it like, uh, Oh, like, uh, spent, you know, a five cents from your pack. will like go to this thing. Like it's always just a quiet thing that we do that, that is like in line with the values of our company. And, so and it's besides, always it surprise people with it afterwards. So besides all these charitable things, I think there's like a really subversive element, like you were saying, to to everything that goes on with Cards Against Humanity and your various pranks and, and things like that. And it seems like this isn't something somebody can just do haphazardly. Somebody has to really have like a deep understanding of the way that they think that the world fits together and to, to be able to to toy with that. I think of it like the way that like a really good stand-up comedian like – Louis C.K., as an example, it's very clear, if you listen to enough of his stand-up, that he has a very well-defined viewpoint of the way that w- the world works. Is, is there something like that underlying everything that, that, you, that you're doing? Yeah, and um, I, I, think we, I think the company um, definitely has values and, and things that we stand for and sort of like a political view on the world. Like, I would, I would say we're kind of a... I would say we're sort of philosophically materialist and um, um, definitely politically progressive. And um, um, yeah, I mean, that comes, I mean, those, we have, we have lots of, like, <laughs> we're not a, we're not a company that's afraid to take like a, a political stance that our fans don't agree with or, you know, whatever. And, and uh, you know, we just did this election pack that's like raising tons of money for Hillary Clinton. And, Was it hard to deal with the, the first couple of times that people were angry yeah. at you? No, because I, well, I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, Cars is a big organization. I can't speak for everyone. But for me, I, I, my whole life I've spent working on campaigns and elections and I've done, you know, local, state, national elections. And, you know, even when you win in an election, half the people hate you. They're actively rooting for your failure and working to stop you from doing what you want. So you just, you just grow a thick skin. Like I, I, people email, you know, even when we did this, like anti this, we've done a bunch of anti-Trump stuff in this election cycle, like very, very pointedly. And we get occasional mean emails from people calling us names and they're mad or whatever. And it's like, what do you do? We email them back. We're like, sorry to lose you as a customer. It's uh, you know, what can you do? It's like, ultimately we feel like the, in the long-term interest of our business is like, we would rather have a smaller audience that has rational non-hateful beliefs about the world because we'd rather make things for that audience than try and make things that appeal to everyone. Like, I just don't think the game would be good or funny if, if it appealed to everyone. I think that's like a, a valuable skill or attribute to have to be uh, comfortable with having people say something, uh, you know, 
being angry with you and things like that. Because I think there's a lot of people out there who I've talked to so many who say, oh, you know, I think about starting a blog or they think about doing certain things. But that's one of the things that holds them back is just that the thought that someday somebody's going to leave a mean comment and they totally will. And they should be so lucky. I shouldn't tell this story because hopefully it doesn't get us in trouble. But we had this like we're doing this thing with this project with Amazon. I, I can't go into like too many details. Uh, who knows if this thing will ever work or not? But I don't. I, I don't care anymore. But uh, it's like uh, we we had this joke we wanted to do. Of, it included this image of two men kissing in it. I mean, you know, it's like that's just sort of our. It was. It was. It it has a political purpose within the product that we're doing. Um, and it's a really great joke. And it was like part of the design of this thing that there was this photo of two men kissing and, um, and it's like in place of an image of a cultural, uh, of a, of a, of a more like conservative cultural image. So we're like taking this old fashioned thing and sort of giving it the, the 2016 update. And I just had this crazy call with Amazon this week and they, I was on the phone with all these fucking suits from Amazon and they were like, they were like, oh, well, this is a contentious issue and it's going to be a press headline. And like, well, we're not trying to comment on current affairs. And I was like, it's like, what's wrong with you people? Like what I was like, do you have no spine? Like who cares? Like if some bigot is like, I'm mad that Amazon sold this thing that has two men kissing. It's like, well, don't, then they shouldn't be your customer. Go let them buy something from the store. Right? Like I just can't, I just can't stand that. I really, I really got, <laughs> it was like a really, na- it was like a really mean call. I was, I was, I was, I kind of took off on them. So I don't know. And this whole product, this whole thing, like project may like fall apart because one, neither side is yeah. willing to come. Well, I mean, you're, it. you're dealing with an organization that maybe wasn't as comfortable with, with ruffling people's feathers or but it's not, even that, it's not, it's not, I, I hate that. I mean, I mean, I just to push back on that a little, it's like, I hate that like both both sidesism that false mm, both sides. Gotcha. It's not like it's not like oh well we have one opinion that you should be able to do this and Amazon has another opinion and it's just like well it's just two opinions out there. No, we're fucking right. Like of course we're right on this. Like if you're going to like Amazon sells there's they they sell the the thing we're parodying with with two straight people kissing on it. Like why can't we sell the thing with two gay people kissing? You know what I mean? It's like it's not it's not an issue with two sides. It's an, it's a it's just yeah. it's just not it's, it's not a more. It's not a moral relativism. Right. Thing. We're we are cl- we are clearly right. And what Amazon is saying is, homophobes will not give us their money if we do this. Wow. And fuck that. Don't take their money. I. Who cares? Yeah. The, it, that that this this might get you in trouble. I don't know with Amazon. <laughs> but but hey, so I didn't make it. them. I didn't make them have a a homophobic fear of two men kissing that's their own corporate culture sure i mean that's a that's like seems like a big story yeah hopefully not <laughs> hopefully not too big <laughs> not that many people <laughs> listen to my podcast so you know it's a it's a it's, it's no a anyway thing. i'm still it's funny i'm still I, I thought i was over it but i'm clearly i'm like wow i'm still really mad yeah, about this so the, yeah yeah um so I'm going to get into some of the uh, some of the rapid fire questions. Uh, sure. What's the what's the biggest compromise that you've had to make to get where you are? Oh man, that is a big big question. Um, you know, so there's eight partners in cards, and the things I'm talking about are the things that I'm about, and not all of the guys are about that. Some of the guys are Republicans, some of them are Libertarians. There's one. Um, uh, David Pinzoff, one of the partners, is getting his PhD in evolutionary psychology at UCLA, which is about sort of philosophically the exact opposite of everything I believe in the world. And we're best friends. We're all best friends. Like I think these guys, I think whether they're whatever their political leanings, like I find them to be 
good in good faith, internally consistent, empathetic, and rational. And I can always not merely tolerate their views, but I am challenged by their views, and and I and I try to open myself up to accept them. So, occasionally we've had to. That means that we've had to make compromises that I was really uncomfortable with um, or unhappy with. So, a, a great example is for a long time, I most of us, like seven of the eight partners, are huge NPR fans, and we're specifically huge WBEZ fans in Chicago. We grew up listening to it, formative for our sense of humor. It's my number one place that I get news. I've really wanted to support them and do a charity thing with them. Um, one of the partners does not believe that the that uh, public radio should receive federal funding. He is philosophically, politically, and and um, in every possible way on principle against any public funding for public media. And I find his position, I think it's dumb and I don't agree with it, but I find it to be, I cannot dismiss it because his point is this, in America, the state should not have a media outlet. And I actually think that's probably a good point. I mean, I don't think NPR is a uh, is an apparatus for the state. I mean, they were clearly very critical of the Bush administration and so on and so forth. But I get it. I understand why he feels. I think that's a justify. I think it's a it's a well reasoned justified position to hold. I certainly was not able to like convince him, and he wasn't able to convince me. But it did mean that we weren't able to give money to BEZ for a long time. And eventually, we sort of reached, and that was sort of a compromise I made. Eventually, did get to do a cool fundraiser for for BEZ, and and you know he had sort of changed his mind on that. But like those little compromise, those little battles, like I lose them all the time, and compromises get made. Specifically in the writing, there are tons and tons of jokes in Cards Against Humanity that I hate, and I'm uncomfortable that they're there, and I don't like them. And if I was the sole author of the game, they'd be gone in an instant. Um, similarly, there's lots of jokes that I love that the other guys hate, and some of them want to take my favorite jokes out, or I have jokes that I'm dying to put in that will never make it in because they're again, you know, the group can't come to a consensus on it. And that's just creative compromise. That's what has to happen when you work with when you're one eighth of the owner of the company, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I feel like it must really help that you have all known each other for so long. You're not about to one of you isn't just about to say, like, oh, I quit and just take the goldfish with me like Jerry Maguire. Yeah, you know what's funny is there was a great like one of the first articles that was ever written about us was this like Sun Times article. It was this awful, it was this garbage article, and they were like, this business, they literally said, this business has the sophistication of a lemonade stand. And they went and interviewed like an economist at U Chicago or a business professor. And he was like, he was like, this is a bad, horrible business. And he's like, these guys are going to rip themselves apart fighting about money, and it's only a matter of time. And that was like five years ago, and we still haven't ever had a fight about money. And it's just, I mean, I cannot recommend that everybody start a, a, pro a project with their eight best friends as exactly equal partners where no one is in charge and you make every decision by consensus. I can't really I can't really prescribe that, but we've all known each other. I mean, I've literally known these guys for 25 years and like we've been through good times and bad. We've been bullied by the same bullies. It's just nothing is, there, there, there's no, there, this game could never be big enough or, or important enough that it's more important than our friendship and all of the guys feel that way. Mm -hmm. When's the time you ex uh, you left money on the table in exchange for something that you valued? Um, well, it's a great question. I, we do it all the time. I mean, one obvious thing is we um, some of the guys feel very strongly that we should make Cards Against Humanity too. That another product that had the same, basically the same MSRP and the same margins and 
would get everyone to buy the game again, you know, that that would do really well and make tons of money and, you know, double the amount of money we're making. And I feel that it's really lame. I feel that Cards Against Humanity 2 means Cards Against Humanity is over. And I'm just reluctant to do it. I don't ever want there to be a two. So instead what we do is every year we get together and we have this incredibly difficult creative meeting for that goes for over a week. And we revive, we go over every single card in the game. We usually replace about a fifth of the game. And so it, every year it gets renewed. We take out old pop culture. We take out jokes that are cruel or insensitive or that we're reconsidering after the year's news. We update everything. You know, obviously a lot of the Obama jokes will go away next year and they'll be replaced with like Hillary jokes. Um, that's just the process of keeping the game current. And we don't charge anything extra for that. That's just cards against humanity. It's just always, whenever you buy it, that, that's the philosophy. Whenever you buy it, it's always good. To me, that's leaving money on the table. If we didn't do that and instead we made those changes and called it Cards Against Humanity 2 and we asked people to rebuy it, that's, we make a lot of money doing that. You know, also like obviously independent, not having a distributor, not having a publisher, it's hard to say. That probably is leaving money on the table at this point. Like we could be in every retail store in the country at this point, but it's just not cool to us to do. Um, we're, we're kind of experimenting with like this really crazy relationship where we're independently distributing our own game to Target and we're doing like a trial run of that and we'll see where that goes. Um, I, uh, again, hope I don't get in trouble for this, but like I am, I'm not really in favor of it. I think it's kind of lame, but it's also like, it's very hard to turn the terms that we're getting and the precedent that it sets for other independent games to be able to get this kind of mainstream distribution under their own terms I do see the upside to it. I do see that it's culturally important for, for independent games for us to sort of break down this wall. And of course, you know, now that we have like an office and employees and expenses, it is hard for me to say, well, let's walk away from this incredible amount of money we'll make. Mm -hmm. So, and just as an, as an aside of the independent games part, you are developing sort of services to help in independent game developers. Yeah, we, we just launched a new sort of spin-off company called Blackbox. You can find that at blackbox.cool, and we do shipping, sales, distribution, all that kind of stuff for other independent games. Um, and, you know, you can use us to do those services and retain complete independence, have creative freedom over your game, do things however you want. It's kind of the service we just always wanted to exist as we were working on cards. Right, and when you uh, started cards, you didn't really know how to do all of those things and didn't really think to find a publisher or something like that. Did it all on your own. Yeah, we just sort of failed upwards for years. Uh, what's the last book that you read that changed the way you saw something? Ooh, great question. Um, my favorite um, mind-changing, uh, mind-bending, mind-changing book this year was... Um, it was called, uh, let me look this up real quick. Um, I can't remember the title. It's by John, it's the Jonathan Haidt book about political framing. Um, the, the Righteous called, Mind. The, yes, called The Righteous Mind, How uh, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Absolutely loved it. Um, I don't agree with him. Again, he's a guy I don't agree with completely politically, but I think his um, sort of psychological theory of how people form moral um, judgments and moral opinions is very compelling. And it changed how I think about that considerably. And I think that it helps explain the Donald Trump phenomenon in a way um, that I wish more people um, could see. In that he's um, sort of so, hack hacking, um, he's sort of hacking people's sensitivity to, to various things or? 
Absolutely. I mean, one of the um, one of the things that um, he talks about in this book is that there are lots of different um, there are lots of different moral matrices, and liberals almost completely care about what's called the harm care moral matrices. So morals, liberals decide whether things are moral based on whether they harm or care the most, uh, sorry, they care for or harm the greatest number of people. So liberals are almost completely um, utilitarians in their moral reasoning. And actually as a, as a philosophy student, like I actually don't like utilitarianism. I think it's not actually that compelling of a system. And I think it's a pretty shit system for progressive um, as the single underpinning moral matrices, moral matrix of all progressive morals. Um, but uh, that's what, and regardless, that is in most sort of um, profiles that they've conducted and studies they've done. Most liberals, that's the number one leading thing that makes them decide if something is moral or not. It's called harm versus care. Conservatives, on the other hand, take into account six different moral matrices that sort of they use to decide whether something is moral or not that they do care about harm versus care. They also care about um, another one that liberals just don't give a shit about that conservative is very important for conservatives is fairness versus cheating, liberty versus oppression, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion is a huge one. Imagine that. Like liberals, could could you imagine being morally against something that is subversive? Like, right. yeah, it's if anything, I was rooting for the subversive thing, but that's a big one for conservatives. And finally, sanctity versus degradation. And Trump is, man, he's hitting all of those. And it's he does it in ways where liberals are scratching their heads, where he's saying, well, he's going to harm people, right? That's the whole response to Trump is, this guy is harmful. He doesn't care for people. He's harmful. On our one moral matrix of harm versus care, he is in the harm side. So therefore, he is immoral. But to about half of the country, here's a guy who's talking about fairness versus cheating, liberty versus oppression, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, sanctity versus degradation, right? I will bring respect and honor back to America. I will solve our problems as an authority figure and make people obey me. I will make Americans loyal again. I will demand loyalty from all of these different groups. Um, I will give liberty to the right Americans and oppress the wrong Americans. This is the language that half of the country speaks. Of course they love Trump. And of course liberals are in the corner scratching their heads going, is this guy for real? Like, does anyone hear anything in this? Yeah, he's very compelling. Anyway, that stuff, that really blew my mind. And I, I really recommend this book um, uh, by Jonathan Haidt. Um, I'm also reading a lot of plays uh, re- recently. And that's kind of the other thing that's blowing my mind. It's kind of, I've never read plays before. I was like forced to read some Shakespeare in high school. And um, I just, I don't know, I just sort of like got, got interest. I've been seeing some more theater and like, it's a thing I don't know anything about. And I just read this play called Arcadia by Tom Stoppard, and I think it's like the funniest, smartest thing I've ever read. So I, this is a whole world. I'm sure people are rolling their eyes, but it's like a whole world that I just didn't know was out there, and, and I'm really enjoying. I might check it out. I've been meaning to like read screenplays one of these days, but haven't gotten around to it. Now, I, I, The Righteous Mind, just an aside to that, uh, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but there's a, there's a really interesting podcast conversation between Sam Harris and Jonathan Haidt. And they're definitely not. Sam Harris is totally a. Agreement. Sam okay. Harris is a. Sam Harris is a fool. I I can't stand to listen to Sam Harris. Okay, well that's uh, that that would be an interesting discussion to to have, but probably not not on the uh, probably don't have time for it on this podcast. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, do you make your bed? Um, most days. I, I my track record is not perfect. It's not like a thing most, for you. 
No, it's not a big part of my life. I have heard that, that, that like successful people make their bed. And I've also heard people say the re main reason to make your bed is like whatever else happens during the day, however bad it is, at least you made your bed. And I find that really compelling, but not enough to make my bed. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, surprisingly few of the guests on this podcast who I think are pretty successful people, surprisingly few of them make their beds or make a thing out of it at least. Yeah, I mean, it's not, uh, I, I'm, I'm a very, like, tidy person, but um, it's kind of a, a functionalist thing for me of, like, it's, it's uh, I have, like, terrible work discipline, and I kind of just, like, go with, I kind of just follow my, it's very hard for me to force myself to do something I don't want to do. Like, I really have no self-discipline. So when the, when the sort of, like, muse strikes and I'm, like, ready to work on something that's difficult, like, sometimes you just get that. You have the right amount of coffee, and you're like, fuck it, I'm going to write this thing. Like, let's go. Then it's like, if I can't find my pen, it's like game, game over. Like, you know, I'll go play video games for three hours. So like, it's just very functionally important for me to like have a tidy workspace and know where all my stuff is and have all the tools I need because I never want to, I never, I'm always scared of like the, the moment will strike where I want to do some work and then like something will be wrong. Like my computer needs an update or I can't find a file or the It's always where the software up, wants to update is when it's time to, or your phone runs out of uh, space. Exactly. The moment that you need to like shoot a video or something for work. And uh, do you have a final message for all of our listeners who are trying to find their own version of success? Um, I do, as a matter of fact. Um, I, you know, so I get um, asked very often on podcasts like this or when I speak to sort of give advice to people um, based on things I've learned from cards. And, you know, it's tempting, right, to do that thing where it's like, oh, well, I have a bowl of oatmeal and you should too. And a lot of business books and business talks are like that. And unfortunately, I really do not have any advice to offer like that. Um, but I do have some things um, to talk about, um, or, or one big idea, rather, to talk about that kind of comes from design that I think was the critical thing from cards. And I've oh, I never known how to say it. I've always struggled to say it. But it's something akin to this idea of like, the most important thing for cards, like looking back on it, was that we didn't know what we were doing and that liberated us to figure everything out for ourselves. And that process of figuring everything out from first principles for ourselves was so important. That was everything. Like we did everything in our own way because we didn't know the quote unquote the right way to do it. That's that's the thing. And I really struggled to say that. And, you know, I was um, someone sent me this book and it's called um, 101. It's kind of a famous design book. It's called 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School by Matthew Frederick. Um, definitely recommend the book. It's very interesting. It's not really about architecture. It's really about problem solving and design. But he says, there's one page in this book that fucking blew my mind, and it is the best articulation of this idea that I've ever seen. And he says, that the I'll just read these. It's these if there's time, I'll just read these sort of nine bullet points for you, because like every single one of them is like the smartest thing I've ever heard. And he says, um, process oriented, the title of this is process oriented, not product driven, is the most important and difficult skill for a designer to develop. Being process oriented means one, seeking to understand a design problem before chasing after solutions. Two, not force fitting solutions to old problems into new problems. Three, removing yourself from prideful investment in your projects and being slow to fall in love with your ideas. Four, make des making design decisions and investigations holistically that address several aspects of a design problem at once rather than sequentially uh, that finalize one aspect of a solution before investigating the next. Five, this is the big one for me, make design decisions conditionally, that is with the awareness that they may or may not work out as you continue towards a final solution. 
Six, know when to change and when to stick with previous decisions. Seven, accepting as normal the anxiety that comes from not knowing what to do. Eight, working fluidly between concept scale and detail scale to see how each informs the other. And nine, always asking what if, regardless of how satisfied you are with the solution. Like, that is not a, a power tip of like, oh, like, uh, you know, launch your Kickstarter project on a Tuesday because the people, the best <laughs> metrics are that day or something like that. But it, it is a way of looking at the world. Specifically, the, the big ones for me are make design decisions conditionally and accept as normal the anxiety that comes from not knowing what to do. That's everything. Like, no great project has been done according to a system that's not this, which is a sort of fearless, like, intellectual inquiry into what, what the fuck are you doing and why and how. Yeah, and that's a great list, thinking on a framework level, and I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Is there, um, where would you like people most to get more of you and what you do? I really, I really wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> okay, just Google Max Temkin. And, uh, you, uh, yeah, I'm on, like, uh, I'm on Twitter. You, you, can, um, you can read my hilarious quips on twitter.com. The website yeah. Twitter, it's um, www.twitter uh, uh, with uh, two, T's. Ta- ta- two T's. That's C-O-M. Is there, is, is there, how many R's is, are there? Is there, there's an so, I? Uh, sorry, let me, um, um, I'll start from the beginning. It is uh, HTTP colon slash slash www.twitter full stop C-O-M. You know, I remember it being like T-W-T-T-R. I re- oh yeah, I remember those days too. Yeah, the fail whale days. It's too bad they couldn't got that for their for their ticker symbol. <laughs> they had to they had to get rid of an R or a T. Anyway, so yeah, twitter.com. Well, all this stuff. You could just replay it if you have trouble figuring it out. But also get cards of cards against humanity, play with your friends, and they'll all feel good because they will be funny. Thanks so much, Max. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by Audible, and they'd like to give you a free audiobook. Choose from over 180,000 audiobooks on any subject you can imagine. Just go to caveatnet slash audible to claim your free audiobook. I hope you laughed as hard listening to that interview as I did, and I hope you got an understanding of the deep psychology that helped make Cards Against Humanity so popular. For more on the psychology of making explosively popular products, check out a really in-depth discussion with book marketing genius Tucker Max on episode 29. And before I go, I've got to ask, do you like books? If you do, sign up for my book recommendations. About 90% will be nonfiction on subjects spanning from biographies to neuroscience. Just go to category.net slash reading and get the first set of recommendations right away. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is CNU, performed by the Album Leaf, courtesy of Sub Pop Records. Love Your Work is a production of Academy Inc.